A long time ago, my brother came into my room and we were having a conversation. He had a bowl of grapes that he was just popping into his mouth, not really thinking about it. And at one point, he set this bowl down and picked up another bowl, which had round objects, round juicy objects in it as well. Without paying any attention to it, he picks it up, picks up one of these grapes and puts it in his mouth and he bites into it and he tastes its juice or maybe more accurately, it's paint. He popped a paintball in his mouth. The look on his face was priceless. He wasn't too pleased about it. He knew that he had done something horribly wrong, left the room in a moment, and proceeded to get rid of the paint from his mouth. I don't know if his kids have ever tasted that paint flavor. I think Jordan was the only one, sorry for giving your name out, Jordan. Jordan was the only one who, that, who experienced the vile, nasty taste of that paintball. We have a, a proverb for us this morning in Ezekiel chapter 18, and it goes like this. The fathers eat the sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. It was a proverb to mention that even though the fathers are the ones who did the deed, they're the ones that ate the sour grapes, and the children are the ones suffering the consequences. You could ask my brother if you ever get the chance to meet him and see, have your kids ever tasted that paintball that you popped in your mouth? And I'm pretty sure he's going to say, what are you talking about? Uh, but kids don't experience the consequences of their parents, or they don't suffer from the sins of their parents. It was a proverb that Ezekiel heard, and I'm sure the Lord got sick of hearing it as well. It's basically a, a fancy way or a nice way to say two things. Number one, that's not fair. Has anyone here ever said that before? But not this way. It says, that's not fair. And it also says, I didn't do anything. How come I have this sour flavor in my mouth right now and I never even touched the grapes? There are two claims that every parent, I'm sure, has heard. And I would venture to guess there are two claims that every person in this room has whined at one point before in their own life. Has anyone here ever been the victim of unfairness? It doesn't have to be something big like you spent a lot of money unnecessarily on a lemon of a car with nothing to show for it, but even something in a smaller scale, like you worked really hard at something. And yet coach doesn't put you in, even though you practice all year for this. Or maybe you've been trying to prevent, from, prevent uh, various bad things from happening. You've maintained your equipment diligently every time you use it. And yet yours is the equipment that burns. Or yours is the equipment that falls apart or breaks. When someone else who doesn't care two cents about it has a perfectly fine harvest. That's not fair. Or when a younger sibling has a lot more freedoms than you did when you were their age. Again, that's not fair. You can probably think of small injustices that have occurred against you again and again and again. And we like to tell people and let people know this isn't fair. Now what about this one? It's not my fault. Has anyone ever said that one before? Husbands and wives, when you're in an argument, do you ever say, it's not my fault, and you don't necessarily point the finger at your spouse, but you really mean it is your fault. Maybe a more accurate way would be to say it's not only my fault. So recognize each one of us brings certain amount of faults to the table. 
When we operate on assumptions rather than clear communication, it doesn't turn out right. We simply say, it's not my fault, and we walk away as though we have no more responsibilities. When we neglect to see someone in need, whether it's physical, emotional, or spiritual, or, or some other kind of distress, we say, it's not my fault that they're where they are. I don't need to help them out at all. And we walk on by because their situation was their choice. It's far easier to see the faults of others than to see our own faults. But our own faults are still there. And ignoring them and refusing to acknowledge them doesn't help anyone out. Those are two of the criticisms that the people in Jerusalem had and that they railed against God here in this passage in chapter 18 of Ezekiel. I'll invite you to open up your Bibles to chapter 18 as I read verses 19, 19 through 32 to see how the Lord responds to these claims. And as we read the Lord's response to his people here, his response is still just as valid for us today. It's just as true as it was when the Lord gave this word to Ezekiel. There are good life-giving lessons and instructions for us here in this text. So again, I invite you to stand out of respect for God's word and follow along as I read Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 32. Ezekiel chapter 18, verses 19 through 32. Reading in Jesus' name. Yet you say, why should the Son not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity? When the Son has practiced justice and righteousness and has observed all my statutes and done them, he shall surely live. The person who sins will die. The Son will not bear the punishment for the Father's iniquity, nor will the Father bear the punishment for the sin's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon himself, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon himself. But if the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He shall not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. Do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live? But when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness commits iniquity and does according to all the abominations that a wicked man does, will he live? All his righteous deeds which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery which he has committed, and his sin which he has committed, for them he will die. Yet you say, the way of the Lord is not right. Hear now, O house of Israel, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? When a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, commits iniquity, and dies because of it for his iniquity, which he has committed, he will die. Again, when a wicked man turns away from his wickedness, which he has committed and practices justice and righteousness, he will save his life, because he considered and turned away from all his transgressions which he had committed. He shall surely live, he shall not die. But the house of Israel says, The way of the Lord is not right. Are my ways not right, O house of Israel? Is it not your ways that are not right? Therefore I will judge you, O house of Israel, each according to his conduct, declares the Lord God. Repent and turn away from all your transgressions so that iniquity may not become a stumbling block to you. Cast away from you all your transgressions which you have committed and make yourselves a new heart and a new spirit. For why will you die, O house of Israel? For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord God. Therefore, repent and live. Father God, these are your words. And your word is true today, just as true as it was then. 
Lord, in your word this morning, we see your heart, your heart for each one of us, your heart for both the wicked and the righteous, that we would turn from our wicked ways and that, Lord, that we would rest in your righteousness. We pray that you would teach us to do that today and each and every way and each and every day. Lord, we pray that you would reveal your truth to us today through your word. In your name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know if this is necessarily considered the upper Midwest or not, but people from the upper Midwest have been the fodder for many comedians for a common trait. And that trait is an over-acceptance of guilt. You can make eye contact with someone and say, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to make you feel uncomfortable there. I don't know how it came about, but we, Apollo, I say we, we or they, I guess I'm, I'm still kind of somewhere in the middle there. We apologize for things that we have no business apologizing for. For example, pulling up to a four-way stop just a fraction before someone else. And I'm sure you have all been there before. What do you do? You get there just a fraction before, but you know that you're before, but you don't want to hurt anyone else's feelings, and so you do this. And they do this. And you do, and they do, and eventually you go and stop and go and stop, and eventually you avoid a crash, but there's all kinds of confusion, and cars pack up behind you. A good Midwesterner keeps waving the other person on. And after that awkward wave at the end where you're not really sure what to do and you try to say, I'm sorry for making you uncomfortable, I should have just went the first place, then you move on and continue going wherever you need to go. It's happened to me a few times at these intersections on Alice Street because there's no stop signs there and I don't necessarily know who has the right of way. But that's not the guilt that I'm talking about here. In recent months... In this past year and a half, there's been growing animosity towards people with certain beliefs. And because you believe differently, then you must accept guilt for that. Or just because you have a certain demographic marker, then you must accept guilt for something you have no control over, you haven't ever done. If you think a certain way, if you look a certain way, or even if you grew up with a certain way, you are part of the problem and you need to accept the guilt for how you have contributed to our current problems. And if at the end of the sermon you don't realize that it's all your fault, then I'm doing a poor job here. Our country has been pretty good at that, haven't we? Throughout our whole history, whether it's forced marches, because these people, it's all their fault. If we can just move them out of the way, we could continue doing what we need to do. Whether it's internment camps, because we're afraid of what other people might do, and so we huddle them together and don't let them out. Whether it's reservations or the color of your skin, we like to point the finger at anyone else and everyone else and say it's your fault. But that's not the guilt that I'm talking about here either. Well, the guilt that we must acknowledge goes deeper than skin color. It goes deeper than our ideologies or our beliefs, and it goes straight to the very core of our beings. It's recognizing that sin that dwells inside of us. And it's a dark realization. And it's uncomfortable to recognize that I am no better than anyone else, and, and yet there but the grace of God go I too. It's humbling but we have to do it. It's being honest with ourselves. 
And unless we are willing to confront a problem honestly, we're never going to be able to make any kind of progress in getting over all of these problems that we have. Now, there are a million reasons, and I'm sure you've used a million and two, for why we shouldn't admit our sins. And none of those reasons at the end of the day are good. None of those reasons are biblical. And none of those reasons will offer any type of healing for you. Centuries before Ezekiel enters the scene of human history, David is a man described after God's own heart. And he commented on the physical reaction that he had experienced from holding his sin inside of himself from Psalm chapter 32. Verse 3, he says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. And then there's a little musical marking word there, Selah, which is used to get you to pause and reflect on those words. So let's do that for just a moment. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Are there times when you've held sin in? When you've been harboring it rather than dealing with it? When you could have confessed it and confronted it, but instead chose to deal with it in a way all by yourself. Or you push down that conviction because now is not the time. It's just impractical. Someday, maybe later, I'll get to it and I'll deal with it. Because I have. And if I'm being honest with you, it's not just a past tense. I certainly have. But I certainly still do as well. Because it's more comfortable. The question comes, is that biblical? And is that recognizing our guilt and is it owning up to it? Acknowledging our guilt and our sin is never pleasant because it forces us to face the reality that we are not as good as we believe we are. It levels our pride and yet it's also, it also has a strange way of healing. And David writes that, in the next couple of verses, some of which you'll recognize from our liturgy that we just confessed earlier. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. David here acknowledges his sin. He acknowledges his guilt. And no longer was he infuriated with the man from whom, who stole the sheep from the poor man. But David recognizes, no, I am that man. This is what I have done to Bathsheba and to Bathsheba's husband and to her family and to my own kingdom and to my own family. David realizes the head that he's calling for is his very own head. He acknowledges his guilt. Getting back to this passage in Ezekiel here, the Lord explains to his people, he says, look, I don't punish children for the sins of their father. Yes, there are consequences that come, but I'm not punishing them for their father's sins. It's not what it's about. Instead, he says in verse 20, the person who sins will die. Quit pointing the finger at everybody else and, and start to look honestly at yourself and realize that you too are a sinner. The righteousness of the righteous man will be on his head and the wickedness of the wicked will be on himself. The Lord punishes us justly for our own sins. 
When the people in Ezekiel 18 saw themselves as being punished unjustly, saying, but God, our fathers have done these things. We haven't. Why are we paying the penalty for them? And the reality is they were walking in exactly those same footsteps. Nobody was forcing them. They had made that decision themselves. They were just as guilty as their fathers. And they were personally accountable to God. So as God is bringing this message to Ezekiel and to Ezekiel's people, to God's people, he is saying this exile that's coming is inevitable. And you have only yourselves to blame here, but you don't have to go there. But it's coming, and you deserve it. They had earned it. The Lord delivers this message to Ezekiel so that they would see it and they would acknowledge their guilt, that they would turn from their sins And if you know the psalm passage that we just read or remembered the liturgy in our service, you know that I didn't, I I ended in an inappropriate section because the verse continues. So I acknowledged my sin to you. I confessed my transgressions to the Lord and you slapped me on the wrist. That's not how it goes. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Selah. Confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. We don't have that forgiveness when we say that there is no guilt. When we say that there is no sin, we're robbing ourselves of the opportunity to hear that beautiful gospel promise that you have been forgiven for the sake of Christ. This practice of confessing our sins isn't to brag about our wretchedness, but to give us an opportunity to be reminded of what God has done for us through Christ. And so God is calling his people here, acknowledge your sin. To acknowledge your sin and then to repent and to receive forgiveness. This passage seems cut and dry and pretty harsh because it is. And yet it's also comforting for us. Because there is abundant forgiveness with God. Another accusation that the people had against God is that God is not fair. These wicked wretches shouldn't be able to go free. They shouldn't be forgiven. They should be made to pay for what they've done. They should take some kind of responsibility for their actions and accept the consequences. After all, it's their fault. It's their choices. They knew the risk. They made the choice anyway. Have you ever thought those thoughts before? It's common. It's natural. We like to wash our hands of the responsibilities that God has called us to and simply say, it's all your fault. I have no part in this. It's an easy mindset for us to fall back on because there's a part of us that's similar to Jonah. We still share that same evil human nature that Jonah had where Jonah sets up a tent and he is waiting for the fire and brimstone to demolish these people. And he gets ticked off at God when it doesn't happen. He wants to see the Lord's destruction fall upon the Lord's enemies and also his enemies. It's the very reason why he didn't want to go to Nineveh in the first place. We want to see justice. And not only do we want to see justice, but we demand justice. We may never say that out loud in a big group of people. Not into a mixed crowd, certainly. But we'd share it on Facebook. Or we would tell it to people who we know are in agreement with us and can say, yeah, yeah, isn't that right? I'm right along with you. We hope that they fill in the blank here. Have you had those thoughts? Because I have. I don't think we're alone 
in that. The Lord gives hope in his words. He says this, If the wicked man turns from all his sins, which he has committed and observes all my statutes and practices justice and righteousness, he shall surely live. He will not die. All his transgressions, all his transgressions, which he has committed will not be remembered against him. Because of his righteousness, which he has practiced, he will live. And then we see why in verse 23. As the Lord reveals his heart for us and for all people, do I have any pleasure in the death of the wicked, declares the Lord God, rather than that he should turn from his ways and live. God is giving this message, giving this brutally blunt and honest message to call us out of our sin so that we would turn from our wickedness that we too might live. And that those other wicked people too, you know, the ones that are more wicked than us, that they too might have a shot and might turn and live and be forgiven because of God's grace. God is gracious and compassionate, abounding in steadfast love. He's patient, not wanting for any to perish, but wanting for all to come to repentance. The Lord is not vindictive, though he is just. There is a difference there. He desires for his people to live and not die. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He desires for you to live, for you to repent of your sin and to turn from your sin. He desires to forgive you. Not that we could continue to live in wickedness, continue to hold on to our righteous deeds, but to turn from them and live. His mercies are new every morning. Great is his faithfulness. This is God's desire. This is his will for each one of us. So we would acknowledge our sin, as ugly as it is, that we would own up to it and repent and live. That we would receive the gracious forgiveness of God and the blessed assurance that comes along with it because that is the only place where assurance comes. Assurance is found in only one place, and it's found in the finished work of Christ. It's not found in the righteous deeds that we have done, as he makes it clear here in this passage. Verse 24 informs us that our righteous deeds are worthless. They're not going to profit us any so long as we turn from them and we start doing wickedness, the wickedness that exists in each one of our hearts. There's no amount of Bible study that's going to fix that. There's no amount of good deeds that you have done that can undo that. There's nothing we can do to change our own hearts. It's got to be the work of God. And our hearts are continually turning against the Lord. These good works profit us nothing if we turn from following the Lord. And that's not right, is it, we say. But God, all of these years of faithfully serving you, how can you abandon me when I needed you the most? I've been a good Christian for 85 years. Why now are you turning away from me? Or surely I can have a little bit of fun and get away with it. We rationalize these things and we reason with these things, holding back to our history, our experiences, our own righteous deeds, which profit us nothing. There is no solid ground for assurance in those things. And we say, that's not right. But the Lord is clear. As good as those things are and how much they profit us here in this life, they can't be used to manipulate God for us to get our way. And so again, we say, along with these Israelites, God, that's not right. God, that's not fair. And yet that's how the Lord has revealed himself 
His ways are not our ways. His ways are not wrong either. Rather, we're the ones in the wrong. And that's something for us to acknowledge, to confess and repent, to submit to the Lord and his word. The Lord reveals his heart in verse 23. He doesn't want any to die, but he wants all to live. He desires to forgive the wicked and desires for the righteous to continue to remain righteous. He calls them to repentance in verse 30, and he calls them to rid themselves of their sins and to create a new heart and spirit. And he asks this question, this piercing question for these people. Why will you die, O house of Israel? It's as clear as night and day. Why do you continue to choose the night and the sin? The chapter ends with the assertion that the Lord takes no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. That includes your enemies. That includes your political opponents. That includes your family members and your friends, your neighbors, and includes yourself as well. Each person that you'll ever see is a precious, eternal human soul whom the Lord loves and whom the Lord desires to live and not die. Every person, regardless of their situations in life. These aren't just empty words of the Lord either. The Lord came and put his own skin in the game. Throughout his life, Jesus maintained this same idea That God doesn't delight in the death of the wicked, but he desires for all men to be saved, which is why he never gave up on the religious rulers. For those who lived righteously, he railed against them, and rightfully so, because they're clinging to their own righteousness. They abandoned the righteousness that comes from Christ. And those who were wicked, no matter how wicked they were, whether they were prostitutes, whether they were divorced, whether they were murderers, They confessed their sins. They received God's forgiveness. And they were given eternal life. Jesus himself enters into world history. As he suffers and he bled and he died on the cross that we might receive his righteousness. And as the crowds mocked and as the soldiers spat and as the thief scorned Jesus, what was it that Jesus prayed? God, take me away from these pagans. It's not what Jesus said. Did God say, did Jesus say, God, now is the time for fire and brimstone. I'm coming home. That heart of God is evident in Christ, even in his greatest agony. Even as he is wrongfully suffering for the sins of the whole world, knowing that he himself is paying their penalty. And he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Do we see Christ's heart and his desire for those who had just spat on his face, for those who nailed his hands and feet and mocked him, for those who cried for his crucifixion? Don't hold these sins against them, Lord, Father. In the face of his enemies, in the midst of his death, under the burden of all of their sins, in the greatest injustice to ever be, Jesus is not crying, let justice come down. But he willingly gives his life so that God would be both just and the justifier of these wicked men. These men and women who choose wickedness over righteousness, who choose to follow after whatever it is that they want to do rather than submitting to God's word. This is our confession. This is our confidence. This is our comfort. This is our Christ. 
And this is what he has done for us. So what have we to fear? Our souls have been cleansed. Our debt has been paid. Our consciences have been cleaned. Christ has given to us life. And so as Christians, it must be our daily practice to acknowledge our sins and to confess them, to repent and receive Christ's forgiveness. Not to say, I'll get back to it at some other more convenient time, but to realize now is the time and to cling to Christ and Christ alone from this day forth and forever. Because it is only in Christ that we have any assurance. It's only in Christ that we are made righteous. It's only in Christ that we are forgiven. It's only in Christ that we are set free. And so when the day comes, when we eat sour grapes, metaphorically speaking here, and that day will most likely be today, when that moment comes and you realize that the grape I have just eaten is sour, acknowledge it. Right then and there. Confess that sin and receive Christ's forgiveness yet again. And know that this is the very reason why Christ came and died for you. That you too would be forgiven, that you too would have life. Because Christ does not desire your death, but desires that you too would live.